Thank you for listening to Big Bear Christian Center Audio Sermon. Join us today as Pastor Roth continues to preach the word from the Gospel of John. Hey, pull out your Bibles. If you haven't already, or, you know, you can open up your apps, your Bible apps. You know, pretty soon we'll be saying, okay, go ahead and open up your, your iPhones and your, and your Galaxies, and you can give online by pressing this button, and then slide over and open up your Bible apps. Um, pretty soon, in fact, you know, maybe we'll, we'll just go on virtual missions trips in the future. You could just, you know, just kind of load up the missions trip app, and you'll feel like you went. Amen? <laughs> And you could have a virtual life. (laughs) I'm living virtually. Amen. But we're in the book of John this morning. And uh, we're starting the book of uh, the chapter two. And I've been enjoying just slowing down the train a little bit. We get into the habit of just rushing through things. Um, in reading through the Bible, right? You get your morning devotions, you sit in your corner, you say, I've got to do my 15 minutes or my half an hour, and, and we just go. And so here we're taking an opportunity to slow down the train and to think a little bit about what is there in the book. Fathers, we go into the Word this morning. We know that it's alive if we'll let it be. So God, change our hearts through the reading of the Word. God, encourage and challenge us this morning, we pray. Father, as this morning as the kids are in kid zone and the nursery is full there, Lord, we just pray that you would bless those that are serving. Bless those little ones, God. Help to expand their, their knowledge of you. God, help them to know you from an early age. We thank you for all that you're doing, Father, here in this place. Lord, bless this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 2, we're going to get through verse 12 this morning. And then next week we'll go on and and finish up the chapter 13 through 25. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, just just a couple verses. As we're going into this lesson this morning, it's like, well, what's the message that we're going to get out of John chapter 2? We know the story. If you're already there, you went, oh, I know this. This is... Jesus' first miracle when he changes water into wine. And there's a lot of, lot of messages. So what we're going to do this morning, what I'm going to do, you're going to sit and listen. Hopefully you're going to get something out of it. But what I'm going to do is begin to read through it and, and talk about the different things and, and some of the messages that are in here. But there's one specific that I really felt God stirring up for us this morning, for me this morning, and so I I hope it'll bless you. But there's a lot of messages found in this passage as throughout the Bible. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. I'm going to just stop there. I, I'm just going to share a little, read a little bit and then kind of expound a little bit so we have some history as well as an understanding of, of one of the things that God is wanting to do in this. Is this microphone still too ringy hot? Is it just me? Good. Okay. We can cut that out of the recording then. All right. Um, so on the third day was a wedding in Cana. If, as you're reading the book of John, we're basically just finding that, that on this day John did this, and on the next day Jesus did this, and on the next day, and now we're at the third day. So um, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now Cana is just a little, little um, town, not too far, just a few miles from Nazareth. This Cana, there's a number of Canas found, and we're not sure which Cana they were talking about.
Nazareth would have been a little bit bigger than, than Cana probably. And so there was a wedding, in, wedding. Now, we find out later in the book of John that Nathaniel is from Cana. Now, some people say that, that this is actually Nathaniel's wedding. I find no support for that, but that's just what some people have said. Maybe it was Nathaniel's wedding. Nathaniel just came on the scene in, in chapter 1, and there's a wedding, and Jesus' mother is there. Because they were from Nazareth, they could have family. I don't necessarily think it was Nathaniel's wedding. But Jesus and his disciples were all invited to this wedding. Now, something just real quick about, about Nathaniel. Again, he was, from, he was from Cana. But there is a lot of speculation that actually Nathaniel is the disciple Bartholomew. Because in the other three Gospels, Bartholomew is mentioned, Nathaniel's not. But in, in John, Nathaniel's mentioned, Bartholomew's not. And, and Nathaniel is found with Philip. And Bartholomew's found with Philip. So they actually think that it's possible that that is one and the same. And that's just a little speculation and possibility. So we'll go on to verse 3, though. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, I've been to weddings. Who's been to a wedding? There's been weddings that I went to that I wish they would have ran out of wine. You know, we've all been to weddings and, you know, weddings can be fun. Weddings can be great, but they can also be, you know, be interesting with all the people gathered around. But here they're at the, the wedding. Now, a little background on ancient, you know, Israeli or Israelite weddings, Jewish weddings. They lasted about seven days. Okay, so so, you know, we, we think that there's a lot of money that goes into a one day event in a, but their culture. It was a seven day wedding. And the very first part day of the wedding, they would invite friends and family. People would come from forever and they, from far away and they would be planning on staying for a long part of this event. The very first part of the, the wedding is interesting is the groom who might not have known his bride because there was a lot of arranged marriages would take part of his garment and, and put it over her during the ceremony and covering her and they would exchange um, jewelry or a ring just like we do uh, very similar to what we would do and first day of a Jewish wedding after they do this ceremony which was also a legal ceremony there were they had to it was a covenant and commitment and there was actually documents that they would um, sign but after the, the the main part of the ceremony the wedding party would actually go into the bridal chamber while everybody was still around and consummate their wedding. And then they would come out for the next six days and party with the rest of the people. Woohoo! <laughs> I'm glad we don't do that part of the ceremony anymore. We leave and do those things. But so that's kind of what was happening. That's a Jewish wedding. So a seven day uh, wedding event, a lot of partying going on. And, and you'll see why this might be why I even mentioned that in just a moment. So Mary goes, hey, we've run out of wine. I don't know what day this is. Um, I don't know which, which part of the wedding ceremony this is, if it was a seven-day celebration. From, from the scriptures, I don't think Jesus stayed for the whole, whole thing. We're going to find that he leaves right after that. Um, but uh, he runs out of wine, and Jesus says, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. When we read the Bible, we've talked about this before, we read the Bible in English, we don't understand the tense, the tones, the things that are going on. When I hear the word woman in front of something, I don't know about you, especially maybe you ladies, that doesn't sound inviting. You know, it's like, woman? 
And so, you know, what's being said here, but when you go back, and I'm, I'm not a Greek guy, but I know how to read books about Greek stuff. So I go, that's what I do. I go back and read books about Greek stuff and find out that that woman in there is, it's an interesting term that he uses. It's not endearing. Some people said, oh, he was being endearing, and he was saying, woman, mother, and it's not. That's, that, it could have been with a simple addition of, of, a, of a Greek word right in front of it with the same word, which is woman. But because they left that word out, it's actually a very neutral term. It's also not derogatory, which that's the way I read it. Woman? And, and that's the English. But, but in the Greek, it wasn't. So it's interesting, though, because he's talking to his mom that he's also not being endearing to her. And I believe it's because what he's simply doing, he's using a term. And I think there's something connected to it saying, your son, the earthly son that you have, cannot do anything about this. But the son of God can. He's not using that endearing mom, mom term. But he's, he's addressing her uh, uh, just neutrally. And he says, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We find later in the book of John in chapter 12 that Jesus says, my hour has come and it's right before he has the last supper and he goes into the garden. Gethsemane walks up with the disciples and that's when his hour has finally come is when everything has been fulfilled, when his three years on earth is fulfilled. But it's not time yet. The time for his betrayal and his crucifixion is not upon us. Now, now here's here's one of the there's a couple of messages that we could have gone with at this point. We could have gone with, um, you know, Jesus submitted to authority himself. That, that we find out that Jesus does go ahead and do something about this, even though he says, what, 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 this doesn't concern me. But yet Jesus did it. So we could preach a message on submission and the blessing of submitting. And that would be a, that's a message maybe you've heard preached out of this passage before. And that, that is a, that's a true and it's a good message. But that's not where we're going this morning. And so he said, my hour has not come. And his mother said to his, the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So there's another message that we could get out of this passage. And it's, again, it's a very good message. And that would be maybe a comparison of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Eve, the mother of all living. Because there, there is some similarity. See, so, or, or they're in contrast, really. Eve was the mother of all living, though every one born was spiritually dead. She is referred to as the mother of all living. And Mary becomes the mother of life. And there's a, there's a contrast, there's an interesting parallel there that we could have a message. And, and there would be even part, part of that would work because if Eve in the garden, when she was having her dialogue with the serpent, after she was tempted, she should have said, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do. But Eve didn't do that. So here the contrast could be, and it is in this, in this section, that Mary, the mother of life, is telling everyone, and he, she herself is, do whatever he says to do. And that's a great message for us. That's a powerful message for us that, that we could preach another time. And, and, but, but I want us to even hear that part of it. That's a wonderful message. Do whatever he tells you to do. Be obedient. L love him. Live in him. And so, so all these messages are not what we're talking about this morning. Isn't this great? 
What are we talking about? And so, you know, there's another one in here about the wine. Now, this one always comes up. It's come up for, for, for centuries. It's a hot topic here in the United States about the whole wine thing. So let, let's read a little bit further. It says, uh, uh, his mother said to him, do whatever he tells you to do. Verse 6. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And, be, and here begins Jesus' sign, his miracle. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Okay, we'll stop there. One thing that you, you pick up on, and, and you know, I was able to, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't even think of that. There's six water pots there used for Jewish purification. Okay. That actually says, though, that the people who are throwing the wedding, they're adhering to Jewish customs. It would probably tell us a little bit that if, if it's important for them to have these water pots, then they probably keep the Sabbath and they live according to the Jewish custom. So, of course, we, we knew that they were Jewish. Um, and so, but these are big, 20 to 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus is about to turn all of it into wine. Now, so, so there's an issue for some of us going, wait a second, Jesus is going to make a lot of wine. Are they going to get drunk? And so the whole there's a debate um, among intellectuals of of the wine, and perhaps perhaps we could preach on on alcohol and wine and whether it's appropriate or not. And and there's debates on whether Jesus made wine with alcohol or unfermented wine, which is just grape juice. So God, God, you know, Jesus makes a whole bunch of Welches here for us, and and. Uh, and so, and there's a, there's a debate. Um, I don't think we need to, to debate that. Like, well, you know, if Jesus made wine, it has to ferment be, to become wine, to become alcoholic. So it must have just been grape juice. I don't have a problem thinking that Jesus can make fermented grape juice, fermented wine, if he can create the universe. And so also, we, we learn from here that the Greek word is really important to find out. In the Greek, the word wine means wine. So it doesn't help us a whole lot there because there was a new wine in the Old Testament. You, f you see a lot of, uh, of references to the new wine, um, which would be freshly squeezed, freshly squeezed. Uh, but it only takes about three days for the fermentation process to begin anyways. So did they drink alcoholic wine or not in the Bible? And there's a debate. In this chapter... In, in a minute, we're going to get to where the, where the guy says, hey, usually they bring out the good wine first. And when everybody is well drunk, they bring out the inferior. That leads me to think that there's alcohol in this wine. They drank so much Welch's that they bring out the Stater Brothers brand now. <laughs> we also know that drinking was common because in Ephesians chapter 5... Using the same word wine, he says, don't be drunk with wine, giving instructions. They were, dr they were drinkers. Now, something that helped me, because I lived in a foreign country, as, as you know, for three years, and we lived in a very international city, Antigua. We had people from all over the world come in. And um, the visitors from other countries, they were Christians. We had, they had to hook up with our church and be part of our church while they were studying Spanish for, you know, three, three weeks, six months sometimes. And invariably, they had come up to me and, you know, because I was the connection between the Guatemalan and, and, and we knew we had a lot of the answers. They'd come and say, hey, 
I need to know what about drinking here because it's a it's a topic. Uh, typically, it was Americans who were asking the question, um, and they said, "Hey, what about drinking?" I says, "That's really easy. It goes like this: the Guatemalans do not drink. It is it, in the church. It's." In the, in the Protestant, in the evangelical church, the, the Christians do not drink. It's, it's wrong, absolutely across the board. Now, Europeans, they drink. If you've ever been to Europe, Christians in Europe drink. Um, pastors, they, they drink wine. It's, it's actually very common in European nations for, for Christians to drink. And so I said, so the Europeans, we had a lot of them. Um, they had even their missions groups. They would have some wine at their missions things. So I said, the Guatemalans do not. The Europeans do. And the Americans lie. <laughs> but it is a topic. But, you know, this message isn't about wine. But you go, OK, so there is that Parsi. Look, at some of yours, you get the smiles on your face. You, this isn't about wine. They say, man, he made a lot of this stuff. If this was really good, he's doing a miracle. There was, I believe there was probably alcohol. This was alcoholic wine. 120 to 180 gallons worth, 150 gallons worth. That's a lot of wine. I mean, but if you think, wait a second, the wedding is going to take place for seven days. And there is a good group of people there that actually isn't that much wine. Because I don't think Jesus is a promoter of being drunk. That's just not, not, not to think. So, so there, there, there's a little, little bit there um, in the wine. There's also the size that, you know, if, if you're a follower, so maybe the message you know, outside of the wine would be, you know, well, he came to bless, bless if it was Nathaniel or whoever else, and for being a follower. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then Jesus blesses you with wine. That could be a fun message to preach. I don't think that that's the message that, we, that we're going to get out of that. That would be an interesting one if we did out of the church. You know, hey, go to that church. They give free beer. You know, no, that's, that's not what we do either. Um, and so, but, but Jesus did this, this miracle and he turned water. And let's find out about this, verse 9. Uh, it says, in verse 8, it says, He said to them, draw some out, this water that is now wine, take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept a good wine until now. And so again, that kind of backs up that. But so you've, you've got this, there's this great celebration going and Jesus has just done, done a miracle. He's turned water into wine. Um, and, the, and, and people are noticing this miracle. And verse 11 says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And this is the part that stood out to me as I was reading and praying over this, this last verse. There's a, some great messages in this section. But it says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. There's three things in this verse that we need to take a look at. The first part is that the word that is used here is signs. It, didn't use a, it wasn't the word miracle. Was this a miracle? Yes. But, but a miracle 
is, is, is a miracle. I don't want to call it just a miracle, but a miracle is a miracle. It happens and it's over. A sign is connected to something. See, a sign is, can be anything, but it's a miracle connected to the reason for doing the miracle. See, Jesus was not in the habit of just doing miracles. When he did a miracle, it was a sign. And John points this out. Throughout the book of John, he uses the word sign. This was a sign. A sign of what? Of God's goodness, of God's glory, of his love, of his compassion. There's seven major miracles, seven signs in the book of John. And we'll get through all of them as we go. But this is the first one. And, and this is pretty cool, but it's not the most spectacular. I mean... You know, you got, you got water, you got wine. What about walking on water? Now, that's a pretty awesome miracle. What about raising a Lazarus from the dead? That's an awesome miracle. But he, he chose this as the beginning of signs. And we could go in a little bit about what it, what it represents. And there's important aspects of that. You know, God is good and he does bless his people. And, and the wine in the Bible is often associated with celebration, with joy and abundant living. And so here, there's one of the things that Jesus is doing is the first miracle is saying, in my life, there is joy. In me, there is abundant living. It, he, he didn't come to reign on our parade. He came to bless us in so many ways. And so this beginning of signs, it, it speaks to us that he is good. That he wants to do things in and through us and give us life and hope. Even as we think of Jeremiah 29, I think we all love that verse. Because sometimes we feel like that's not our life, but we think, I know the plans I have for you. The plans to prosper you and give you a hope and a future, not to harm you. We need to hang on to those things. And the, this miracle, this sign that Jesus does is speaking to that. I have good things for you. I want to bless you and I will. And I can take something ordinary and make it wonderful. He took these stone jars that were natural and inside of them natural water. Just water. And, and we, we've heard a lot, and, and I've gone over time that, you know, well, they drank wine because the water was bad. No, they drank water too. They, they, they drank water. You know, remember Jesus stopping at the well? It wasn't a well of wine. So Jesus takes these stone jars full of something ordinary that, that would, could have been used for bathing, but also would be used for drinking. Natural water, a natural stone jar, and does a supernatural miracle inside of it. You know, I'm looking at a whole bunch of stone jars today. You were born, we were born into this world, and we're natural. But if we'll allow God to come in and do a miracle in life, the natural side of us can turn supernatural. He wants to turn our regular lives and put his deposit in and make it supernatural. Don't miss out on that. Don't hold on to the natural side of your life so strong that you can't have a supernatural work of God in your life. But you've got to let God change your natural life into a supernatural life. Next part in verse 11. It says he manifested his glory. He manifested his glory. Well, what does that mean? Let's go back just just one page or one one chapter to John chapter one. 
when you're reading from, from an author, here's, you know, here's a little bit of help, help. When one author uses a word, you can go back and see the uses of it in other parts. And the first time that the word is used often will give you an understanding of what they mean by that word, if they're using it any different than normal. And in chapter 1, verse 14... We, read, we, we studied this a few weeks ago. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Now, the word glory is found throughout the Bible. It's the same here as it is other places. But then it says, The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we come to verse 11 in chapter 2, it says, He manifested His glory. His glory is the one and only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. That's glory. God's love for us is His grace and truth manifested through Jesus Christ. Powerful. When I think of, of God's glory, I immediately go back to Exodus. It, for me, this was just, it was just this life-changing time when I was reading through and, and, and actually was, was listening to a sermon um, on, uh, online. It was on a tape. Do you remember what tapes were? It was a tape. Cassette tape. Um, and this message expounded on Exodus chapter 34 when God, Moses was talking with God. And he says, I want to see your glory. And God said, listen, you can't see my face and live. But I'm going to sit you here in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to hide you here and I'm going to pass in front of you. And when I do, I'm going to put my hand in front of your eyes. And when I pass in front of you, I'm going to take it off and let you see the backside of me. Go to Exodus 34. And I went, wow. And I'm wrong. Yeah, no, it is. That's it. I think I'm wrong in my, in my, my passage, so I'm going to tell you about it. And, and I, I apologize. And God passes in front of him and declares his name. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, the God who is gracious and loving, forgiving of sins, visiting the sins of the Father upon the generations to come. And he... And he sees this beautiful, glorious picture of God, the glory of God, and Moses is in awe. And what's really cool about that is everything that Moses saw in the glory of God was just the backside of God. That's God's glory manifested, revealed to us. That's awesome. That's what he wants to reveal to us. Is His goodness, and His mercy, and His faithfulness. You know, there's something in there that as, as modern day Christians we struggle with. I still struggle with it. And that's that not releasing the sins of the guilty. He says, wow, wait a second. There's a part of God that says, I will punish sin. And, and, and we need to understand that is a part of God. Now, when somebody comes to Christ and receives His forgiveness... There is no punishment for those sins. But God is a God of justice. And outside of Christ, there is judgment that will happen 
on all the ungodly. And that's a part of God. And that's part of His glory. To know that He does visit sin of wickedness upon unrepentant sinners. Now, there's a part in that passage that I said, and I want to really briefly mention this, that it says that He doesn't leave, that He visits the sin of the fathers upon the children and their children's children. And we go, what does that mean? And this is, just briefly, this is what I believe that means. Your sin has consequences. Your choices in life has consequences. Your parents' choices in their life had consequences. And you are living in some of the consequences of your parents. And even of your grandparents. If you've, you, you, you were raised in a certain type of home and there were certain things at work in your home because of their choices... I believe that God created this whole world and he set it on a course. And part of the course of this world is that there is consequences to sin. And so when he says that he visits, he doesn't punish children for what their parents do. But he sets something in motion that says that children will live in the consequences of their parents. And that means that you need to think about parents that your actions will be visited upon your children and your children's children because of the choices that you make. Now, God is the redeemer and we see him come and redeem and he heals and he does things. He does amazing miracles in people's lives. We've seen people with AIDS come to Christ and get spiritually healed. And at times we've seen the miracles where they were physically healed and the AIDS was no longer there. But I've also seen those who lived a bad life and they contracted a disease like AIDS come to Christ and Christ changed their heart and they became a new creation. But they still had AIDS because sometimes those consequences of those sins. And so that, I believe, is what he's talking about. It says those sins that you, your parents have done, those sins that you have done will be visited upon your children. It's an encouragement for us to go to Christ and not live for ourselves. We don't want our children living in our consequences. Thank God for His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness, His restoration and His redemption. I'm standing here as one who, who should not have any of these things in my life. Didn't, wasn't raised in a Christian home. My mom wasn't raised in a Christian home. Her parents were not raised in Christian homes. But Christ came in and redeemed us and set us on a new path. Hallelujah for that. Amen. And so, back to John chapter 2, verse 11. He manifested His glory. Lord, we need to see Your glory today. We don't see, need to see You do miracles, but Lord, we want to see You do signs. I don't want to see a miracle for a miracle's sake. That'd be cool. I want to see a sign that points to Jesus and has a reason for it. He doesn't just do miracles in our life just to show off. He doesn't have an ego trip. He doesn't need to show off his power. When God does something, when Jesus does something, it's a sign. Then the signs always point back to him. And he manifested his glory. Grace and truth. We need the message of grace.
There's grace for your sin. There's grace for your circumstance. And he manifests that message to us. There is grace. And his grace is enough. But there's also truth. The truth is, there is one God. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. And outside of Jesus Christ, whether we like it or not, the Bible is very clear. That outside of Jesus Christ, no one will see the kingdom of God. No one will go to heaven. There is only one way. We are, of all people, narrow-minded. The next time someone comes to you and says, you are such a narrow-minded Christian, stop refuting it. Stop trying to argue your way out. You are. In fact, if you're not a narrow-minded Christian, you might not be a Christian. Because the Bible is clear. There is only one way. It's not many ways. It's one. So I'm narrow-minded. I'm a brainwashed, narrow-minded Christian. You should have seen how dirty my brain was before. My mind needed a good scrubbing. It's been washed in the blood. And His glory has come and His glory is grace and truth. And we live in that grace and truth every day. Now, the last part of this verse is simply this. It says this, beginning of signs, Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. The next verse says that they left and they followed him. It says after this, he went down, verse 12, to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. They went. Verse 11, they believed in him. Verse 12, they're following him. When Jesus comes and he does a a miracle, he does a sign in our life. He manifests his glory to us. And that glory is his love. It's his grace. It's his truth. It's the backside that says, I am merciful and gracious in forgiving of sins. And he says, here I am. And we have that choice. The moment of decision. Do we believe in him? His disciples did. It didn't say that anybody else at the wedding did. The disciples, they believed in him. This morning, we know that we've been presented over and over in our lives that moment, that the moment of, will you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I know most of us in here and most of us have, have said yes to that. And we started following Jesus. The disciples had just started following Jesus, too. And Jesus comes and does another miracle, a sign. And his disciples then are, are caught once again. And they say, we believe in you. Will you believe in Jesus? His manifested glory that was full of grace to forgive your sin. His truth that says that he is the only way and that we cannot live for ourselves by ourselves. Will you believe? Because that belief then has a second step. And that's the disciples that they followed him. There's a lot of people today that say they believe. They believe, they believe, they believe. If I believed I would win the lottery, I'd buy a lottery ticket. I don't believe it. 
Belief is connected to action. If you believe in Jesus, you'll follow him. If you're not following him, you need to check your heart and say, why am I not following? What am I afraid of? What's going on? You might have that stone water jar and you've got that natural side. There's something in you and it's natural. It's it's not of God. He says, I don't want this natural part changed into supernatural. Maybe because you're afraid what God might do. I think the enemy gives us a lot of things to try to be afraid of of God. Many of us in here are control freaks, whether you admit it or not. You, you want to be in control and releasing and believing in Jesus and following him is releasing control. But he wants to take your ordinary life and turn it into supernatural. He wants to take your natural life and turn it into supernatural. He wants to do the same with me. His disciples believed in him and they followed him. Because they saw his glory. And they saw that he wasn't just a, a God of doing things, a God of miracles. See, he's a God of signs and the signs point back to himself. He's the way, the truth and the life. They point back to him that says only he has the words of eternal life. And they got it. And we need to get it, too. We don't follow Jesus for what we can get out of it. We follow Jesus because of him and what he's already done, because his grace really is enough. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes and just spend a moment in, in his presence. Father, you know each and every one of us in this room. You know where we're at. You know if we've just attended a wedding or if we're a disciple of yours. God, I pray that each and every one of us in this room this morning would see your glory. That we would put our trust in you, we'd believe in you. And that we would follow you. God, in order to do that, we need that miracle, that sign in our own lives that you would take what's natural and do something supernatural. God, only you can change a heart. Some of us in the room this morning, God, would need to pray that prayer, God, change my heart. Take away my fear. Help me to trust in you. Help me to put all my confidence in you that you are full of grace and truth. That you are glorious. God, give us the strength to make that commitment to say, I trust in you. I put my faith in you. I believe in you and I will follow you. God, I thank you that there is grace in the moment. Even as we go on and we read and continue to read, we know that the disciples struggled and 
They asked questions. Peter denied you. Three years into knowing you and following you, he still struggled. So, Father, we thank you for the grace. But today we make the first step. From wherever we're at today, we take another step in your direction. And we can only do that in and through you. Father, as we go from here, we, will, we follow you. And we thank you for revealing day by day, step by step, your glory. Lord Jesus, thank you for turning water into wine. Thank you for taking something natural and doing a supernatural work inside of me. Continue to do it. Continue to help me to yield to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you in your life groups this week. Get a chance to fellowship with one another. I think there's still some wonderful snacks outside. You can have a treat and get to know somebody new.